0: Today's show is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. How would things have gone for LaSalle if he'd had a good map maker to find the Mississippi? What if the Santa Fe expedition had been able to commission a detailed survey plot of all the wells and springs from Texas to New Mexico? If Leatherman Data Services had been around back then, Texas history may have turned out differently. Leatherman Data Services are experienced cartographers who share your passion for the past. They provide high-quality mapping and geographic data services for historians archaeologists, and cultural resource management firms, people who plumb the depths of history and need their maps to be accurate. If you think you need their services, you can contact Leatherman Data Services by sending an email to Services at gmail.com or find out more at their website, LeathermanDataServices.com. We thank Leatherman Data Services for sponsoring this episode and many others on the History Podcasters Network. Also, kicks to the face. That was later. <laughs> oh, well that's the Chuck Norris era, sorry. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan.
1: I'm Mike Zulkowski. And I'm Sean McIver, and I'm Scott Elfstrom.
0: For many, the ultimate personification of the mystique and legend of Texas is the Lone Star Badge of the Texas Ranger. From its early days as an irregular frontier defense force to its modern incarnation as a high-tech law enforcement agency, the Texas Ranger Division has acted to protect and defend the Lone Star State and its people and have cemented its legacy in the hearts and minds of Texans in the world. But before we get started, who's your favorite Texas blues
1: guitarist? Well, uh, I like uh, Eric Johnson from Austin, Texas. I mean, I have to go with the classic Stevie Ray Vaughan.
2: And I'm going to go slightly unconventional with this, and I'm going to say Willie Nelson. I got to see him play live years ago, and he pulled out his, his electric, electric guitar and started picking some blues on that thing. It's impressive for an old man. He's always impressive.
0: So what are the Texas Rangers, and why are they so prominent in Texas history?
2: Well, today the Rangers are a branch of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Their roots are not really in law enforcement at all. In the early days of Anglo colonization in Texas following the Mexican War of Independence in the early 1820s, loosely organized bands of militia were charged with, quote, ranging the frontier north and west of the settlements to guard against Cherokee, Comanche, and other Indian attacks. Mexican settlers in Texas that were concentrated in the southern area along the Rio Grande were somewhat under the protection of the Mexican army but Texas is such a vast territory that there was no way to completely safeguard those settlements. In fact, one of the reasons Anglo settlers were encouraged to enter Texas was to serve as a buffer between the Mexican settlements and the native tribes. The buffer idea didn't really work out, though, because the Anglo settlements didn't come far enough west to block off the eastern edge of the Mexican frontier, and no one was settling in high numbers north and west of San Antonio. Stephen F. Austin's Old 300 and other settlements were regularly raided by Indian war parties and could not get the protection of the Mexican government. And their numbers were so few and the area was so sparsely populated, it just wasn't practical to have a standing colonial army. On August 4, 1823, Austin wrote that he would, quote, "...employ ten men to act as rangers for the common defense and pay them with land from his own holdings." While it was debated as to whether or not this is when Austin actually organized the Texas Rangers, uh, he may have just been talking about it and entertaining the idea of something to do, the official lore of uh, the Ranger Division marks this as the date of their original founding.
1: Texas Rangers was officially commissioned as a division of the Texas military shortly after the Declaration of Independence in Texas. On November 24, 1835, the Provisional Texas Congress established a formal unit of three companies totaling 60 men, and named Robert Three-Legged Willie Williamson as the first major. Williamson was named this because Polio had bent one of his legs at a 90-degree angle at the knee, which forced him to walk on a peg leg, but that did not diminish his fighting capability. During the Revolution, the Rangers served chiefly as scouts, spies, and saboteurs, destroying crops and farm equipments as the Mexican army advanced following the fall of the Alamo on March 6, 1836. Most notably, they served as the rear guard during the runaway scrape, as General Sam Houston retreated from Gonzales and urged all settlers to follow. The Rangers were on, quote, escort duty during the decisive Battle of San Jacinto. After the Revolution, while Sam
0: Houston was president of the Republic of Texas, the Rangers continued to be tasked with menial jobs. This is due to the fact that Houston had spent a lot of time living among the Cherokee, and he had even married a Cherokee woman, and he favored a peaceful existence with the Indians. This obviously was not compatible with the tactics of the Rangers and their frontier fighting ways. In 1838, Mirabeau Lamar was elected president of Texas. Lamar had fought the Cherokee in his home state of Georgia and, like many of the Anglo settlers in Texas, had not forgotten the help the Indians had given to the Mexicans during the Cordova Rebellion earlier that year. The new president favored the eradication of Indians in Texas and saw the Rangers as the perfect tool to achieve that goal. The Texas legislature gave Lamar permission to increase the size of the ranger force, and their campaigns
2: led directly to the removal of the Cherokee from Texas. During this period, as the frontier territory transitioned through independence and into statehood, four qualities that the Texas Rangers had been evolving since the 1820s elevated them from tradition uh, into legend. The first of these qualities, according to historian Robert Utley, author of the wonderful book Lone Star Justice, The First Century of the Texas Rangers, was leadership. As he says, Texas fighting men could be led but not commanded. The fighters that kept the Indians at bay and won independence from Mexico were not disciplined soldiers, but fiercely independent and unruly frontiersmen who succeeded more through luck and tenacity than strategy and tactics. It took a gifted leader who led by example to mold them into an effective fighting group. The second quality that defined the Texas Rangers was their very nature. Uh, They were hardened by years of living on the frontier, fighting Indians and Mexicans during the Revolution, and they frequently retaliated for raids or ranged into enemy territory looking for a fight. They didn't just sit back and wait for the fight to come to them.
0: The third quality that helped elevate the Texas Rangers to legendary status was the collection of specialized skills they had gained in marksmanship, horsemanship, and Indian fighting tactics. Also, kicks to the face. (laughs) That was later. Oh, well, that's the Chuck Norris era. Sorry. (laughs) All of these skills... uh, <clears throat> all of these skills were learned from experience, and the more they fought, the more experience they gained. The fourth quality was obtained through the employment of a brand new weapon, Samuel Colt's revolving pistol. This innovation would make its mark with the Rangers at the Battle of Walker Creek on June 8, 1844. This is also when the leader that came to represent
1: the ideal for all Texas Rangers, John Coffee Hayes, made his name. In 1838, John Coffee Hayes came to Texas along with his brother William, and they presented themselves to Sam Houston as, quote, practicable surveyors. Their father, Harmon, had fought Indians and British regulars with Houston and Andrew Jackson during the War of 1812, and Jackson was considered an uncle. The brothers believed Texas offered a good place for them to practice their trade and sate their adventurous spirits. The young republic brought a multitude of surveyors and map makers, as land was the young nation's only real asset. Hayes was an unassuming, youthful looking man of only five foot eight who had worked out of San Antonio, west of the traditional border of Anglo-Texas, established by Austin's original settlements. South and west were the inhospitable Chaparral Plains extending to the Rio Grande, but to the north lay the Texas Hill Country. This was desirable land for colonists, and thus was desirable land for a surveyor to explore. Uh, North of the Hill Country is the Edwards Plateau and the Llano Estacado, where great herds of bison wandered and were hunted by the Comanche. More frequently, as the Anglo settlers pushed up the Brazos and Colorado rivers, the Comanche slipped down the plateau and joined the native tribes of the areas in raiding the settlements. Comanche knew what it meant to have surveyors in the land, more settlements. So, the surveyors by necessity had to become Indian fighters. President Houston needed rangers more than he needed surveyors, and he appointed Hayes to the rangers' division.
2: Hayes quickly became a hardened outdoorsman and was once described as, quote, Wiry and active and gifted with such an iron constitution that he was enabled to undergo hardship and exposure without perceptible effect, sitting by his campfire at night when the rain was falling in torrents, apparently as unconscious of all the discomfort as if he had been seated in some cozy room of a first-class city hotel. And this, perhaps, when all he had eaten for supper was a handful of pecans or a piece of hardtack. Mm, (laughs) hardtack. This ranger of rangers was also a gifted leader. This quality seemed to be innate and surfaced very quickly after he uh, took command. He often showed in clashes with the Comanche tremendous military skill and was known for being, quote, utterly fearless and invincible. Hayes was cautious with the safety of his men, but much more rash when it came to his own personal danger. One of the names he acquired from his frequent opponents, the Comanche, was Brave Too Much. <laughs> While there was no real institutional organization to the rangers at this time, the realities of the frontier in the San Antonio area meant that some military presence was required for survival. John Coffee Hayes became the de facto guardian of uh, San Antonio and the area around it. In 1844, many men had come and gone in several enlistments in the units that Hayes commanded. He was surrounded by veterans. In June of 1844,
0: Hayes and some of his men were scouting for Indian sign in the hill country, and found plenty up around the headwaters of the Perdinalis and Llano River. They headed back to San Antonio to assemble the bulk of the company, and stopped to draw honey from a beehive on Walker Creek, a tributary of the Guadalupe. It was standard for the rangers to be traveling lightly and living off the land. Suddenly, the rear guard Hayes had left in place came running to report that a band of 10 Comanches was following. As they quickly saddled up and prepared to ride, they immediately came into view of the Indians, The Comanche fell back and dismounted at the top of a ridge, taunting the Anglos and Spanish to charge. Hayes led his men into a ravine, temporarily hiding them from view, and mounted a daring flanking maneuver directly into the midst of the enemy. The Indians were startled and ran to their horses, while the Rangers discharged their single-shot rifles, threw them to the ground, and drew their pistols, the relatively new five-shot Colt revolvers. The Warriors counter-attacked in strength enough to roll over the small band of whites, but the Rangers showed great discipline and control of their horses, moving in a circle rump to rump. Hayes's men fought for 15 minutes at close range, lances and arrows versus five shooters. Several rangers took serious wounds, but the pistols brought down enough Comanche warriors that the attackers broke off their charge. Reloading with fresh cylinders, the rangers took chase. The Indians were commanded by a charismatic chief and made stand after stand as the pursuit continued in fits and starts over two miles of broken
1: land. The Comanche didn't completely break, and they still greatly outnumbered Hayes' men who by this point had one dead and four wounded. They couldn't continue chasing, nor could they withstand another charge. As the chief rallied his men for one more assault, Hayes shouted, Any man who has a load, kill that chief! Ad Gillespie still had a loaded rifle, and despite carrying a wound from an Indian lance, dismounted and took the shot. It found its mark, and as the Indian leader fell from his saddle, the warriors broke and fled the battlefield. Hayes and 14 men had routed 70 Comanche warriors, who were regarded as the finest light horsemen in the, in the world, and some of the best fighters. Twenty-three of them had died on the field, and Hayes estimated thirty wounded were carried off by their retreating brothers. Fewer than twenty of the Indians had left unscathed. Hayes himself credited their victory to the bravery and reliability of his men, and to the new five-shooters they were wielding, that allowed them to match the rate of fire of the Comanche bow and arrow. This new technology in the hands of tenacious and cunning rangers was a demoralizing shock to their enemy. Hayes, of course, stopped short of praising the other quality that allowed them to prevail, exceptional leadership. In this relatively minor yet pivotal battle, the legend of the Texas Rangers was solidified as in the words of Robert Utley, quote, daring, intrepid, well-trained men armed with repeating weapons functioned as a highly disciplined team under an outstanding leader. Perhaps the most telling statement, though, on this action came from Hayes' opponents that day. After the battle, one Comanche war chief said, quote, I will never again fight Jack Hayes. How could they expect to defeat men who quote had a shot for every finger of the hand?
2: The annexation of Texas into the United States precipitated the Mexican-American War in 1846, and companies of rangers were put into federal service. They served as guides and guerrilla fighters along the front lines through familiar territory of northern Mexico. With each battle, including Palo Alto, Monterrey, Buena Vista, and the siege of Veracruz, the legend grew. The rangers were mentioned and praised in the national press and their prowess was renowned and feared as far away as Europe. They were now part of American folklore. Not mentioned in the folklore, and unknown to the public at large, were atrocities such as the massacre of unarmed elderly women and children in the town of Saltillo. This was ordered by uh, Ranger Captain Samuel H. Walker, who had worked with Sam Colt to improve the revolver. Uh, This resulted in the next generation of that weapon, which was the the Walker Colt six-shooter. The Rangers were also tasked with suppressing partisan activity against American supply lines, which they did with harsh ferocity. These and other brutal actions were sadly common in this time period, as rough men tried to maintain order on the rough frontier, and earned the Rangers the name Los Diablos Tejanos, the Devil Texans. Losses among the Rangers were high and included Captain Walker himself late in the war. Following the Mexican-American War, the state agency was disbanded
0: as the political realities of the time made a roving force of bloodthirsty Indian fighters a liability. Their proven effectiveness as a fighting force on the Texas frontier was not forgotten, however, and they would later be reconstituted in the 1850s when federal troops failed to adequately protect western and border settlements. Hayes and Bigfoot Wallace would move on, but other new leaders would arrive from the ranks, such as Ben and Henry McCulloch, Charles Goodnight, Lawrence Sull Ross, and John S. Ripford, During the Civil War, a large number of Rangers, including the McCulloughs, Ross, and Ford, enlisted on their own to fight for the Confederacy. For a time, there was some confusion about the state of the Ranger Division, as the 8th Texas Cavalry took the name of Terry's Texas Rangers, but was never affiliated with the state agency. Those Rangers, unable to join in the Army for age or disabilities, were enlisted to patrol the frontier for Indians, border banditos, Union troops, or deserters. Future Governor James Throckmorton and John Ireland as well as retired ranger Creed Taylor, were part of these ranger companies.
1: Because we can't have a 19th century podcast about Texas without talking about Creed Taylor. Yeah, thanks for putting that in there. (laughs) In the Reconstruction period, a union-controlled version of the Texas Rangers was created called the Texas State Police, which we've talked about in previous episodes. This force was tasked with law enforcement throughout the state. They were specifically ordered to enforce unpopular integration laws And protecting freedmen and Republicans. They were a fully integrated force with several African American members. Charges of corruption and abuse of power, some of them justified and others not, tarnished their already weak reputation among the state's political establishment. The state police lasted less than three years, disbanding in 1873. Following year, newly elected Democratic Governor Richard Koch restored the Texas Rangers, incorporating a special force known as the Frontier Battalion, tasked with controlling ordinary lawbreakers, as well as renewed Indian activity on the frontier. The lawlessness of reconstruction needed to be reined in. It was during this period that the Rangers began their transition from hardened Indian fighters to state law enforcement, although they were still considered a military detachment. By the end of the 19th century, order and security had mostly been restored to the Texas frontier, in no small part due to the efforts of the Rangers. Their role continued to evolve towards enforcing the law, and it was during this time period that some of the most well known Ranger captains came into prominence, including John Jones, Jack Armstrong, and especially the great Leander McNelly.
0: The refrain of One Riot, One Ranger has echoed throughout the years, and its origin lies in a quote attributed to Captain Bill McDonald of Texas Ranger Company B, Frontier Battalion. McDonald led his company from 1891 until 1907, and his exploits have been enough to fill at least two major biographies. But one operation that gained national attention was the illegal prize fight between Ruby Bob
2: Fitzsimmons and Pete Mayer. In the 1890s, Governor Charles A. Culberson was swayed by a vocal minority that no prize fight should take place in Texas. Nonetheless, a fight was scheduled and promoted to take place in Dallas. The press gave the event a lot of attention, and specially scheduled trains brought spectators from all over the country. The governor sent the Texas Rangers to take charge and prevent the event from occurring. As the story goes, when Captain McDonald stepped off the train alone, the mayor asked where the rest of the rangers were. The apocryphal reply from McDonald was, Hell, ain't I enough? There's only one prize fight. The truth was that this fight was so well publicized and so widely attended that nearly the entire rangers force was present, including their adjutant general supervisor. They, the governor was like, do not let this happen. Everybody go there and stop this.
1: Yeah, so not only did the rangers prevent the fight from happening in Dallas, but they followed it to El Paso and then the Langtree, which is a tiny border town as famous as the home of Judge Roy Bean, the hanging judge, who was actually a fan and a proponent of this fight. They eventually forced the whole thing to take place on this little island out in the middle of the Rio Grande. Now, the saying, one riot, one ranger, combined with some other incidents, it became, it was a sensationalized version of what was actually said. But it does serve well to capture the legendary spirit of the Texas Ranger during this time as it had permeated into popular culture. Yeah,
2: I think in today's nomenclature, you would term them a uh, force multiplier. In
0: the 20th century, the legend of the Rangers would continue to evolve and modernize to meet the new needs of constantly changing Texas. Next time, we'll talk about some of the 20th century Rangers and what they mean to Texas and Texas.
2: When I was researching this, um, a lot of the my, the material came from uh, Robert Utley's book, and it's just, it's a great book. And I, I'm going to have to go through and read the whole thing in detail again, because it's just, there's so many things that we couldn't put in this podcast. The whole battle of Walker Creek, he builds up to that. That's the first thing that's in the book that kind of sets up the whole idea of what the Texas Rangers were and what they became. And he goes in describing the training that they go through. Basically, they learn to fight like the Indians, except with pistols and rifles instead of bows and arrows and javelins. They, uh, you know, he goes into detail describing how they learn to um, lean way over in their saddle and pick up like, you know, a hat or a coat or they say even a silver dollar off the ground while still riding on their horse and learn how to hang over the side so you can only see a foot and a hand and then they shoot with their pistols underneath the horse's neck. You know, it's like they were amazing fighters. It's like they, like they said, you know, the Battle of Walker Creek where they fought the Indians and the Indians were freaked out because all of a sudden here's all these white men riding around on horses like them except they've got these cannons in their hands that can fire just as fast as they can fire their bows. Most of our...
0: You know, of your childhood youth is the the idea of the Lone Ranger, and there's a sort of this mythical yeah. guy on a horse, and he's a great shot, and you know, it's that myth. And then you talk about these skills that these guys have, and just how tough and strong they were. You know, it's interesting because I just remember watching as a kid, like movies where you would see all the soldiers line up in a big line, and everybody points their gun and shoot at each other, and it's like, well, that's a terrible way to fight. Yeah. <laughs> that's a terrible way to fight. This makes a lot of sense. Like we're gonna we're gonna use the all the best tactics of our enemies we're going to use the best modern weapons we're yeah. going to, we're going to train hard i mean to me you describe sounds like modern seal force training right exactly
1: yeah and hayes jack coffee hayes he 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 is lone wolf mcquaid i mean th- there's another story similar not not long after the battle of walker creek he actually got caught alone on the prairie uh and held off a band of Comanche and Kiowa raiders, yeah, and killed a bunch of them by himself, yeah, that's, with his I, with his two pistols,
2: yeah. And I think that's part of their story and part of their legend is that yeah, there's the solo things that they can they can hold off, you know, bands of Indians all on their own. But then there's they're much more effective as a cohesive force, and that and that and that's kind of what I was trying to get at is that like yes, they're amazing frontiersmen on their own, but when you put them in a group with a good leader, they're way better.
1: Right. And this generation of, of that first generation of Rangers is really my favorite one, is the most fascinating one to me. Is and so many of these characters that we've talked about on our previous shows. Henry Carnes was a ranger, Creed Taylor was a ranger, Bigfoot Wallace, uh, from the El Muerto story. Yeah. Uh, Sol Ross. You know, the McCulloch, Saul Ross, Rip Ford, all of these people were Rangers and they lived up to that reputation. You know, that we talked about the Mexican War, the Mexican American War. And yes, they were they were vicious. They were they, were, but they had been fighting Mexican bandits, Mexican soldiers in the yep. cross border incursions, and the Comanche for for a decade at that point. But the interesting thing is, you know, we talked about Sam Walker, and you know, we talked about Rip. I mean, uh, we talked about Jack Hayes was a small guy. Well, Sammy Walker looked like a teenager. He was yeah. really a young looking guy, but he was called Mad Walker. He was ferocious and always in the front of the battle, and. The interesting thing about him is the Patterson revolvers, the Colt Patterson revolvers that they had, they weren't good enough. They, they had some problems. Yeah. He went to Sam Colt, who had gone out of business at that point, and said, we want to order some new guns, and we need them to be better. And so the Walker Colt, if you've ever seen one, it's bigger than Dirty Harry's gun. Yeah,
2: there's, there's a good photo of it in the book, and I highly recommend anyone that's interested yeah. in the history of the Texas Rangers to read this book. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes because it's it's fascinating yeah
1: it it, to this day is one of the most powerful handguns in the world um because it could it fired a 50 caliber bullet (laughs) and it was a pistol and it was but about a foot and a half long yeah And, Um, and another
2: example of the technical prowess that these guys had to have is you you know we mentioned in there about them reloading and chasing after the indians well reloading in this case is not what we think of where you pop open the cylinder and dump your shells out and then use an auto loader to stick them in there these are they had to physically remove the cylinder because these this was before cartridges right the or this is before metal yeah these are back, casings back these revolvers. are these are paper cartridges with powder and uh-huh. the ball you know and they had to be preloaded. yeah and for those who didn't grow up
0: in the country in texas uh, we appreciate i'm sure they appreciate the description of that because the rest of it is like Psh, i got this yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> um well, the other thing is that, you know, I love Lonesome Dove. That's one of my favorite books to ever read. And Larry McMurtry is a Texas writer. And he bases based his characters of uh, Colin McRae on real Texas Rangers. And, uh, good night and loving. But from this period of time, and, it, you know, you said force multiplier. is like a small company of Rangers, which is usually five, six men at the most. And yet they were capable of fighting much larger number of opponents because they had to be. There were so few of them there. There was never enough Rangers, really.
0: You know, growing up Texan, like the Texas Ranger has always represented like the pinnacle of law enforcement. And they have lots of interesting—the modern one has lots of interesting rules and stuff that are carryovers from the, the old days. And that there's no official uniform of the Texas Rangers. And they're not—they use their own personal vehicles. You know, you brought your own horse. You brought your own gun. You did the job. You're also the toughest sucker on the prairie. I, I don't know about other places, but I feel like it's a, such... The Texas Ranger is such a uniquely Texan role and law enforcement history that's not really repeated anywhere else in the U.S.
1: Yeah, but the closest you really get is is the U.S. Marshal Service, but that's for the whole country. Right. In Texas, it's specifically... The, their role is is very specific. And we'll get to more of this in the 20th century... But even in the 19th century, the the Rangers were politically ma- manipulated. They were a tool of the politics of the day. Uh, and that kind of went away a little bit in the late 19, uh, 1800s. But then in the 1900s, it really came back. And you will see in the 20th century now, there are laws. they The state cannot abolish the Texas Rangers. It's against the law. They have to, they have to do a constitutional amendment to change the Constitution to allow them to abolish the, the, the Rangers if they were wanted to.
0: Well, just to keep it in the context of this time frame, you know, these guys were so tough. They were so great in that, you know, regardless of whatever the political, whatever political divide they found themselves on, whichever divide, you know, they found themselves on the side of, you can't take away from just what talented, amazing fighters these guys were and just how incredibly tough they were. Um we've all lived here in Texas long enough to drive across these crappy parts of Texas where there's just, and it's you drive through these parts of Texas and and you think it as a kid, you think it as an adult, you think how in the heck do you get across this with just a horse and like what you carry in your saddlebags? Like how would I get, how would I get from here to there on a horse through hostile Indian territory, like yeah,
1: that's about about forty-five miles west of Abilene, where you really yeah. kind of get that. But you think, wow, one hundred and fifty years ago, this highway wasn't here, and there was nothing else here but Indians yeah. and buffalo. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: and, yeah, I mean, in in reading the description of uh, um. Hayes and his men fighting in the hill country, you know, I've spent a lot of time camping up there and hunting up there with my dad. And it's just, that terrain is not, I, I can't, I can't imagine what that yeah. must've been like.
0: Your brain cannot wrap around can't what wrap this around place it. was like. Yeah. yeah. Cause,
2: cause when it, in the book, you know, that battle he talks about, they chased the Indians over two miles of the Texas hill country, two miles of Texas hill country. <laughs> it could be an elevation change. of like yeah. thousands of feet. So, well,
1: and, and I think it, it's back to what you said about how fierce these guys were. The Comanche war chief, who we've talked about the Comanche in previous episodes, of how much respect we have for them, said, I'm not going to fight this guy anymore.
0: Well, Well, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a great song by the great Texas artist, the Reverend Horton Heat. Yes. The baddest of the bad. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about the Comanches as these guys are the baddest of the bad. And now we've talked about the guys that the baddest of the bad don't want to mess with. Right. I mean, this is truly the baddest of the bad. I don't know that there's anybody tougher that we can find. We're going
1: to look. Yeah, we're going to look, but I don't think we're going to find them. Not not tougher than Jack Hayes. That wraps
0: things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java.
1: I'm at Shaw, with 2 ns And I am Scotticus.
0: If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.